2 Corinthians 9 concerns the giving to the poor saints as an act of faith in God for the glory of God, for the praise of God. Here now the reading of God's holy word. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 1. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready. Lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in the same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had notice before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad, He hath given to the poor, His righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God, whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, we've been reading about the giving of the Macedonians in chapter 8, the desire that Corinth and the Achaean churches had to help as well. A year before, they had been forward and made promises that they would do specific things, and they had yet to do these things. So Paul, in verses 1 through 5, gives an apology, a defense. Why was he pressuring them to give as they had promised? Here is his defense. He says, it is superfluous for me to write unto you. It is over and above necessary. It's more than is necessary or super added on top. It's not necessary, in other words. It's more than necessary. I, I don't need to do this. 
But the problem is that your zeal provoked very many, he says. Many people looked to you. And that was a good thing, that you had such a zeal. They wanted to be like you, zealous. But if we boasted about you, Paul says, and you had this zeal that you professed, but you failed to follow through, that, he says, would be a vain boasting. We would have lifted you up and said the good that you're doing, but you're not actually doing it. That would be a vain boasting, not backed with deeds, just an empty zeal. Now remember, those of Macedonians, he mentions them in verse 4, they of Macedonia, they gave of their deep poverty, didn't they? And here the Corinthians have shown them the way and failed to fulfill it. We don't want to be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Not not even just we being ashamed, but you, not to mention you Corinthians who said you would do this. Verse 5, make up beforehand your bounty. Now this word bounty in Greek means your blessing. You're doing good, eulogia. The good thing that you intend to do. And he contrasts it, we'll see, with covetousness. This should be a matter of doing good, not as of covetousness when you give it. Now, when you give bountifully, you give freely from your heart to the other because you love them and want to do them good. How does a covetous man give? Does he give because he wants to do good to others? No. He has to have it wrenched out of his hands. That's the covetous giving. I'll do it, but I'm going to complain about it. I'm going to make it hard for you to get it from me. I'm going to grudge about it. I had to give, but I didn't want to. Now, there is a form of covetousness over our own goods. These are the goods that belong to the Corinthians. And they could give them freely as of bounty to do good to their neighbors. Or they could say, not so fast. Not sure I want to give my things to you. He says that's to give as of covetousness. You can covet your own things. You can hold them tight. You can make it hard for people to get help from you. You can complain after you give. All those our covetous means of giving. Our catechism, question 147, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment? The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. We want good for our neighbor. We're to have a bounty. That's what the 10th commandment requires. Not to be stingy and to want their things, but to be happy with their goods and to increase their wealth or outward estate when we have opportunity. Let us not be stingy, miserly, or covetous over our own things. Let us be free in giving to others. Rather, we should learn to be tight-fisted with our own desires, what we want, and generous 
with our neighbor's need. That's how the Macedonians were. They gave of their great poverty. They didn't necessarily look to their own desires. They denied themselves what they wanted so that they could bless these other saints. And this includes our time, our talent, and our treasure. Verses 6 through 15, we have directions then concerning the acceptable way of charitable giving, bountifully, deliberately, and freely. And this gives good encouragement here by the apostle to the the Corinthians to do so. Notice verse 6. He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Now, if you sparingly sow, you will not plant as many seeds, will you? And if you don't plant as many seeds, will you have as great of a harvest? Of course not. So God uses this, Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but attendeth to poverty. I'm not going to plant all these seeds. I want to keep my seeds. I want to have a hoard of seeds. Well, what happens at harvest time? You have a smaller crop. It tendeth to poverty, Solomon tells us. Verse 6, He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. If you sow your seed in the way of blessing others, not in covetousness, what will God do in response to that? Proverbs nineteen seventeen, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. That's a, du- a double payment, God says. You lend to the poor, I will look at that and I'll pay you that plus another portion again, God says. Sowing bountifully. You will reap bountifully. God has promised this very thing. He promises that if we tithe, he'll bless us. He promises if we give to the poor, he will bless us. Sounds like something we should look into, doesn't it? Notice here also concerning giving in verse 7. Every man as according as he purposeth in his heart as he has decreed or predetermined. This is subjective. There's no objective standard for charitable giving as there is with tithing. That's compulsory. It's by a law. It's in proportion to what you get. One out of every 10 is what the word tithe means, the 10th, a proportion of increase. God says you're obliged to give that. This is not obligatory. You can give this or not give this. You can create a decree inside of your heart for particular givings. And let every man do this according to his subjective predetermination. Not grudgingly, not sorrowful, not forced or of necessity, he says. Why? Literally, he says, for a cheerful giver emphatically loveth God. He puts the direct object first a cheerful giver. But God is in the nominative case, that is, he is the subject of the sentence. God is the one doing the loving, but he wants to emphasize the cheerfulness of the giver. This is our Greek word where we get the name Hillary, like the church father, or the word hilarious, one who is jovial, one who is joyful, one who is cheerful. When you give out of benevolence for others to do good to others, it should not be a pain to you. It should be a joy to you. 
That's the kind of giver that God loves. God, he says, is able to make all grace abound to you. Do you think that somehow God will miss the fact that you gave or that you gave bountifully to do good to others? God can make his grace abound. We cannot outgive God. If we look after the poor, Solomon said, then we're lending to God. You think he doesn't own everything? You think he can't pay you back even more than what you gave? God is able and he is willing and he will actually cause all grace to abound. For mere physical giving, can you imagine? Just for money? That's it? Yes, that's what he says. He will cause all grace to abound so that we may abound in all good works and all liberality. Good works then must be done in reliance upon God's grace and upon his power, not upon the power of men or the efforts of men. Should we give efforts? Yes, of course. But we don't rely upon them. We rely on the grace of God. This is God's grace to cause us to do good works. That's what he's saying. Let us then give within the context of God's grace. Let God's glory be our goal, his power to supply us in the giving, his promise to sustain us underneath, and then plead with God, please, Lord, in faith I'm doing this. Please fulfill your promises to me. Verse 9, as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. This is Psalm 112, verse 9. Now we must, when we read the Psalms, take into account that there is David in his life and his experience. There is his original audience who sings the Psalm, the people of Israel, especially their Levites. There is us who receive the word of God and our personal experiences then there are the prophecies that weave their way through the whole concerning the church of Christ and concerning Christ himself. Let me ask you, who has a righteousness that remaineth forever? Oh, Christ does, of course. Who else? Those united to Christ, the body of Christ, the people of God, believers, in other words. David is a lesser fulfillment. David dispersed abroad. David gave to the poor. David had an enduring righteousness, both the righteousness of justification, because he said, blessed is he whose sins are not imputed to him, which is the same as saying, blessed is he to whom God imputes righteousness by faith without any work on his part. David was blessed and justified in the same way as we are, and also through the imparted righteousness of Christ, by which we are made conformable to the image of our Lord Jesus. So is it talking about Christ, or is it talking about us? Yes, it is. And this in much of the Psalms. It's giving us moral duties it's holding before us the greatness of our salvation by being united to Christ. And it's showing us that the Spirit works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here Paul's using it in the moral sense. What is our duty? What is it that God works in us? This righteousness that endures forevermore. 
that grows over time in sanctification, that is perfected by faith in Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous giver. Then he says that God, he's wishing this benediction that God would multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, provide for you in your body, in your goods, and provide for you in your spirits and in your glorious growth in Jesus Christ. This is what we should pray for ourselves. This is what we should pray for other believers. And this is what we should rely upon with God in mind that we lend to the poor as a means of lending to God himself. Not only, he says, will you supply the wants of the saints, but, verse 12, is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Can you think of anything better? You'll help the poor saints. You'll cause God's name to be glorified. And you'll fulfill the promise and zeal that you had, which we boasted about a year ago. Win, win, win. And they who see it, verse 13, will glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel. You say you're subject to the gospel. Your words are that you are submissive to the good news. What about your actions? That's what he's calling them to. He's not saying you're hypocrites. He's not accusing them. He's saying you need to go from profession to subjection. You need to come under the good news that God sent his son because you couldn't do anything for yourself. That's good news. And now you, in subjection to that good news, give to those who are in need. Thanks be unto God for this unspeakable gift he has given. This, this gift cannot be uttered in mere words. Well, what gift is he talking about? Is it Christ and the gospel? Yes. Is it Christ moving us to give? Yes. These are unutterable gifts, not within the order of nature, come down from above through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes. And now the Holy Spirit, conforming us to the gospel image of Christ, causes us to want to give to others. This is an unutterable, unspeakable gift. And thus far the explanation of 2 Corinthians chapter 9.